0: Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Boulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Cody Stroop. He is currently a hospitalist and associate program director of the internal medicine residency at Magnolia Regional Health Center. He trained at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, University of Tennessee Medical Center Knoxville, and completed a master's of healthcare administration at UCSF. He has dedicated time to the fields of medical education, hospital-acquired infection reduction, and quality improvement. Today, Dr. Stroop will shed some light on his journey through medicine, his life, and how he relates it all to mortality. Cody, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me on, Matt. And um, I, like you said, I'm Cody Stroop. I'm originally from a very small town in rural Mississippi. Um, like you said, I did my medical school in Mississippi, went to Knoxville for training and um, actually started to pursue a cardiology fellowship in New Orleans and found out quickly that that wasn't the route I wanted to take at the time. And so was basically looking for a job and knew that there had been a internal medicine residency program that was through the osteopathic program. Uh, route um, in the next town over from where I grew up here in Corinth, Mississippi, and I basically called them, and they had someone leaving and said, hey, come in for an interview, and got it, and or did it, and then got the job, and it's uh, been here about six years now, worked my way up from academic hospitalist up through where, for about the last year, I've been the associate program director, also spend a lot of time in quality improvement, particularly Um, Healthcare acquired conditions, like you said, and um, in that realm, most of my work has been focused on CLABSI reduction.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that recap. Um, So for the listeners out there, Cody and I trained together in Knoxville and have been friends for, I don't know, it's been a while now, probably almost eight years, I guess. Um, And even in residency, you were an exceptional teacher. And I just wondered if you've always been drawn to teaching and kind of where that inspiration comes from.
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, I appreciate that. And and yeah, just so for clarity, Matt was one year behind me, so I had the ability to do some teaching early on. Um, The... um, So I come pretty much from a family of educators. Uh, My mother was a fifth grade school teacher for 31 years. My brother is currently a assistant principal at a local school. Uh, My sister-in-law is a school counselor. And I myself, after college, um, had a year where I was a public school teacher, taught mainly eighth grade science um, before I started medical school. So education has always been very important um, to me, to my family. It was just one of the things that was instilled early on, you know, and not something that's super common in the rural area, in the area that I grew up, um, mm-hmm. that it was a uh, expectation, but that you go to college, that you pursue education. And in that regard, I was very lucky. Um, so yeah, teaching is something that I wanted to do as a career some way and, being a being a physician, you're, a, you're afforded that opportunity with patients and, fortunately for me, in academic medicine with future trainees, medical students, and residents and such.
0: Yeah, and just going through training, yeah. whether you like it or not, you're forced to teach somebody at some point, which is a blessing for most of us. For sure. Uh, with, with your mom being a teacher, was she able to kind of – like expose you to certain ideas or principles in a particular way or like in a guided way or in a protected way or did she expose you to as much as she could?
1: Um, So, you know, I think that's a, that's a good question. And it's hard to answer without knowing the opposite, I guess, if with saying, what would it have been like if she didn't, but yes, you know, I was exposed to a lot. Um, They didn't, they tried to, answer questions I had, keep the world open, um, reading, uh, things like that. Uh, So, yeah, I would say I was I I think having a having a parent that was a teacher uh, was very beneficial that, you know, you see or they saw what uh, what struggles kids have when they come through Mm -hmm. and have a better way to try to offset those uh, that makes children.
0: sense just, just seeing like a whole swath of people i guess teaching is similar to medicine in that respect where you get to see the spectrum of society from the most privileged to the least privileged uh yeah for do, you, sure. do you remember the first time you dealt with
1: a death yeah um i you know i uh when I think about my first experience with death, it would probably be my grandfather, my mother's father. He was, uh, he was a, a very, uh, uh, I wouldn't say a big figure in my life. He, for a little context, he lived in Wichita, Kansas, which is where my mother was from. And I was here in Mississippi. So I, I saw him, but you know, he wasn't, uh, the normal grandfather that you saw, you know, every week and things, but was still a, still an important figure. And, um, he was a, he was a pretty remarkable man. He served in world war two. He was born in the 19 teens. And so was very much older when my mother came along, but I was, when he passed, I would have been in the second grade. So whatever that makes you seven, seven Seven or eight. eight. Yeah. Yeah and that's really the first experience that i really remember with um with dealing with death and loss and and seeing how you know it affected my mother and ironically or not ironic however you want to look at it he died really from a medical error um mm. he was uh he was crippled he had worked um labor manual labor jobs most of his life and walked with canes and he went in for a routine medical procedure you know at this time I have no idea what it was but they uh, decided to put a catheter in and a urinary catheter and he ended up getting a catheter infection when he probably didn't even need the catheter had he been able to get up and go to the restroom um, Mm. and, and ended up passing from that but I just remember the the anxiety, the turmoil, seeing my mother really sad for the first time, um, that I can remember. And, and, uh, I think, you know, one thing that, you know, stands out is my brother is four years younger than me. So he would have been very young and my mother flew to Kansas to, to see him before he passed and fortunately was able to make it right before he, he did pass, And then my my dad and my brother and I drove, and I can just remember the way up there. My dad having to remind us that, you know, this isn't going to be the normal, happy time that you were up here. You know, because you, when we only saw him so often, you equated it with joy and seeing your grandparents and everybody's probably the holidays and and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And so, just remembering that, I that that really does stand out to me.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you remember if your mother kind of was she upfront with you about this or was there a protection
1: about it or was the family open about the death? Yeah, to be honest, I don't really remember that. It happened very quickly. Like I said, he was in for a routine procedure. I mean, of course, I'm sure uh, I maybe mean, my mother would have been aware of that. I'm not sure that she made me aware of that because it was something that was supposed to be a non-issue, basically. Okay. And then when he got sick, I assume he became septic and all that, that it happened very fast, as we know that can happen. And so I don't really remember, to be honest, um, how direct or anything. I don't remember the moment that I was told, but I assume it was – my parents, one thing I will say, they were very – they are very – You know they're they're going to tell the truth. They they weren't ones to really sugarcoat things for my brother and I. Gotcha. Yeah, I
0: just I think it's interesting how families deal with this, um, especially on an age dependent basis, depending on how young kids are. And there's just there's no right or wrong answer to it. I just I think it's interesting to compare and contrast how certain families deal with certain issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do you think that? I mean, you might not be able to tie this all together, but. It is interesting how much you focus on hospital-acquired infection. Do you think that has anything to do with the way that your grandfather died?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question and one that I haven't personally pondered. Um, But perhaps, you know, I, I I don't know that it has a direct correlation. But I do think, in general, I have a very... I have a very strong uh, opinion that that people come into the hospital and and sometimes we as medical professionals can cause more harm than good and um, not intentionally. But I think the human human is pretty resilient and sometimes they you know, we only add to problems rather than help prevent them. Right. And. Along those
0: lines, one of my favorite expressions in medicine is if it's strong enough to help you, it's also strong enough to hurt you, which is just an unfortunate truth and in modern medicine we're often just trading one problem for another. but we do Absolutely. have a responsibility like to try to make the hospital as safe as possible, and I think the work that you're doing is extremely important and I would love if you could share with. The audience kind of the experience that you have with dialysis catheters and the lack of access for something so something so ubiquitous in medicine that a lot of us in
1: uh, more highly populated centers take for granted yeah for sure so <clears throat> excuse me so the hospital that i work at is um is listed as a 200 bed hospital due to nursing shortages and things through covid and and the fallout from that we're not staffing that many beds currently, but we do have a dialysis center across the road um, through Fresenius. And and so we do have patients and a nephrologist on board now for the last, he came in a little before me, so probably about seven years. And so we are taking care of a lot more patients prior to that. If a patient had needs for dialysis, they were, they had to be transferred. Um, We also have a four, four bed inpatient dialysis where they can get that when they need it. But going back to kind of what you said, just um, just to kind of even take a step back further, this whole interest in community acquire or in in uh, central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs started when I first came to my institution. Um, there was a very uh, a very cavalier opinion and attitude towards central access, central venous access, so. Any patient that had difficult access, um, couldn't start an IV or the IV blue, they would just consult the medical residents to come put in a central line. And so that was not how I was trained. You know, central lines are used for very particular reasons and access generally just straight access isn't one of them. There's other ways to find access. I
0: mean, we were certainly drilled on the indications and contraindications and infection prevention
1: exactly yes yeah. for sure and and we had very few central line infections through through our time and training and so I got here and the central line infection rate was high and basically I was like well a lot of this is because we have too many central lines and right so I kind of started a personal crusade against that and as you know how personal crusades can go in systems, <laughs> sometimes they you can make some traction but you can make some enemies and um Nothing like putting your knock on the line, but for
0: the greater good, for
1: sure. Yes, yes. And so, as we as that kind of moved forward, um, in just a little background on on hospital payment, there's a program that the federal government through CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has called the HAC or Hospital Acquired Conditions Reduction Program, and that's a That's a a set of five different metrics that make up 85% of your score. And then 15% of your score comes from what's called PSI 90. Um, and that's a group of different in-hospital conditions. But as I said, that's only 15%. So five conditions that make up the 85% of the score are clabsies, caudes, which are urinary infections um, caused by catheters, surgical site infections, and hospital acquired MRSA infections, and hospital acquired C. diff infections. And so our administration at the hospital was looking at this because the penalty for this is if you're in the worst quartile in the nation, so the bottom 25%, you are penalized um, by CMS 1% of your yearly payments. So for every dollar that comes in you're only getting 99% of that and and that adds up 1% is a lot when you think about all your Medicare and Medicaid payments that are coming in for a year right and for the audience just
0: to let them know any hospital that hospital system that is in the black is an exception most are just trying to make it to even so 1% is a huge deal
1: Exactly. Exactly. And even for even for a small hospital like ours, um I say small, small smaller hospital like ours, we're talking, you know, into the seven figures for this one percent penalty.
0: Wow, yeah. That's and significant.
1: So, and so they established this uh different quality council and my job was to reduce CLABSI, central line infections. We were doing pretty good on the other four big metrics and, and central lines seemed to be the thing. So I jumped on it because, as I said, I already had this uh, idea that we did too many central lines and things, and so started that project and, and have been very, very successful um, thus far. Uh, we have introduced some new devices for blood culture draw oils because blood culture contaminations can lead to what are called false clabsies, where the patient probably wasn't sick, but the blood culture showed certain bacteria that were probably picked up from the skin. And without getting too deep in that, we've made great success, um, almost, a, almost a fourfold reduction in the number of our central line infections. But going back to, to other things is we see a lot of, of permacasts. And so for those that don't know, a permacath is a type of central line that goes into a central vein namely the the superior vena cava that allows for dialysis to occur hemodialysis in patients with renal failure and these lines are what are considered semi-permanent the patient can leave the hospital with them but the goal of these lines is not for this to be the patient's only source to obtain hemodialysis Studies, multiple studies have shown over the years that the, the safest, the cleanest, the most effective access for patients is to have a surgical procedure, a fairly simple surgical procedure that allows them to have their own body make their access by um, taking a vein, usually in the arm, and doing a process called arterializing it, which makes it larger and stronger and able to have repeated punctures into that vein. And that's how dialysis should be performed. But in my facility, just in general, for the first five years, I was here, we had no surgeons that would do those procedures, not because they're bad guys or girls, but because they just weren't comfortable with them. And they, 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 and this is a problem nationwide. So I also have um, tying in with the whole central line infection I have a a passion for increasing the amount of fistulas, which is that surgical procedure to increase the rate of fistulas in, in our patient population and reduce the number of patients relying on these, um, these, these central access catheters.
0: Yeah. It's, it just truly is so interesting. Like how there's so many specialties that are lacking across the country and, also, when you consider how often we offer dialysis, arguably to patients we shouldn't be offering dialysis to, it's just, it's just this whole complex mess of um, access, what we should and shouldn't be doing, and ultimately mortality, is someone okay with this quality of life. And it's really hard to have that conversation about dialysis because I guess unless you've been in dialysis, you can't really talk to what the quality of life is like. So it's hard to make fully informed recommendations. Right.
1: And that that goes, you know, kind of piggybacking off that, just the idea that I run into, not weekly, I would say, but fairly often is you have patients who are on dialysis for renal failure and they may have cancer or they may have severe heart failure or COPD and something like hospice care, is the best route for them. But they're very, very, very hesitant to give up their dialysis because and and I understand it from their perspective is that they they don't want to become fluid overloaded. They don't want to become uremic from from not filtering the blood properly and have those those side effects when they go into the hospice realm. And You know, right, wrong, indifferent. I've run across some hospice companies that, if the reason for hospice to them is not renally related, then possibly they can do a few sessions of dialysis and still remain hospice. Mm -hmm. Others are against it, and in all honesty, I don't know what the what the rules are per se. You know, but it is that is something that I don't know if you've ever ran into that issue, but something that I've ran into several times where. Patients are, 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 they understand, they understand that hospice is probably the best thing, but they don't want to, they don't want to give up dialysis. Yeah, I can't
0: say I've run into that particular issue. And honestly, that sounds, I'm conflicted on that because if you're, if you're that ill with another, with a secondary disease outside of your renal failure that you have less than 12 months to survive from. I personally can't rationalize doing dialysis.
1: Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I I totally understand it from that standpoint, too. But, you know, there's it's it's a difficult conversation, you know, to have for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, just again, to piggyback off of this, what's kind of your general approach to end of life care or even a coach status?
1: Yeah. So I think um, I I. There's there I don't fear the end of life talk with patients. I think some I think the general population fears death. I think the general population thinks that death is seen as this this horrible, morbid thing. and and don't get me wrong, I'm not uh, I'm not out promoting death. but <laughs> what I generally tell patients, and and their family members, because a lot of times you get into these situations and it's the patient's no longer capable of decision making and all too unfortunately and all too often, there's no advance directives that have been made. And so you're stuck with family members who love their loved one, you know, it's their mother or their husband or their brother or their child in some horrible cases, and you have to you know, explain things that they can understand, but yet also make them understand that this isn't really their decision. It, it It's them saying the words. And so my kind of spiel when I, when I approach this is I say, you know, I come in and let's say it's a child and their parent. And I say, look, you know, I never had the chance to meet your mother and to know what her wishes would be and to know how she viewed life and death and what she would want if this situation arose. And I said, but you do, you knew her, you saw when her friends may have been ill or her parents may have been ill and how she reacted and what she may have told you. I never want to be in this situation or mm-hmm. conversely, I, I want, I think they didn't do enough and I would want to do absolutely everything I can until, till there's absolutely nothing left to do. And it's hard, but we have to look at this as not our decision, but her decision. And you're just being her voice because, you know, most likely what she would say if she could come and stand beside us and look at herself, what would she tell us to do? And if you can answer that with what she would tell us to do, then there's no need for guilt you're not letting your mom down you're not giving up on her mm-hmm. we're simply following what she would want and what her wishes are
0: i i couldn't agree more i think that's an important message for everybody to take away from this episode if nothing else is if you are in the position of making decisions for your loved ones just put yourself in their shoes and and answer for them and you can't you can't go wrong well i'm not saying it'll be easy but it should kind of remove some of that possibility of, of fear or guilt um, and just keeping that person's decisions at, at the point of your words like Cody said is is going to save you a lot of heartache in the long run I just I wanted to circle back to the CLABSI conversation uh, sure you had such a reduction in CLABSIs which is hugely important uh, did you also see a reduction in mortality for this for the hospital
1: and honestly I haven't uh, looked at that data yet. It is something that I think is, uh, I've never honestly really thought about it. I've looked at other metrics, um, but there are still some that I need to look at, you know, um, and and that's definitely one of them that I haven't, but uh, haven't even really thought about it, to be honest with you. But I think that's something that would be definitely, definitely something to look into and see if there was. I don't suspect that there will be much difference in all honesty, I suspect that mortality may have even increased just due to confounders. Not due to obviously reducing central line infections is uh, is not going to increase your mortality. But this all happened during the pandemic, so that mm-hmm. was the other big thing. Is that while central line infections nationwide and in our state here in Mississippi both went up nationwide um, through verifiable data, we cut ours fourfold. And so we did really good work, but a lot of people still died over the last couple years, as everybody knows, um, due to the pandemic. So I think it's something that could be looked into, but I would not at all be surprised if the numbers didn't play out that that mortality decreased.
0: Yeah, you might get better data as we get further removed from COVID. Or, I mean, I, I bet there's a statistician out there that could tease that a part better than yeah. I'm able to describe at this point, but I was just curious. And I think, I mean, this might just be my personal interest. I'm sure there's some people out in the audience that might find this worth talking about too, but I, I would like you to talk more about the reduction of blood culture contamination and why that is so important.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, a little, you know, blood blood cultures are, for those that aren't, sure is when you come into the hospital and you're suspected of having an infection samples of blood are drawn Um, generally they get four bottles if you're an adult four bottles um, aerobic or or oxygen loving bacteria so to speak and then anaerobic and you want to draw two sets so it's two sets of two or and so From different spots and in different areas of the body and and sometimes their recommendations are even at a different time interval up to you know 30 minutes to an hour or so apart and so the data that we can gather from that is invaluable almost so if you did have a horrible infection whether it started in your bladder or your lungs or wherever and the bacteria have been able to enter your bloodstream, that puts you at much higher risk for many things. Um, it, it just your overall mortality is going to increase. And so the, the purpose of blood cultures is that we can identify those patients that have had an infection that's bad enough to enter into the bloodstream. And they also give us very good data on which antibiotics are able to control this infection and kill the bacteria, because in general, you come into the hospital, you're really sick. I generally tell patients, I say, we're going to kind of go with a shotgun approach here in the beginning. We start these very powerful broad spectrum antibiotics, which have side effects of their own, kind of going back to what you said. If it's powerful enough to help you, it's powerful enough to hurt you. And after generally 48 to 72 hours, if there's bacteria growing there, we'll know which antibiotics it's sensitive to and we can kind of go into more of a sniper rifle approach and really target that one bacteria without um, overuse of, of our broad spectrum antibiotics. So one thing that I noticed at our facility was we had a high contamination rate in residency i mean contaminations happen in residency there are i can remember though you know it was very rare that you would see a a two out of two meaning both of those sets of blood cultures that had what we call a common commensal organism so We hear the word staph and we, you know, we think of staph bacteria, but there are many, many subspecies of staph bacteria. and, And some of them are very common and they live on your skin and they're completely harmless. But if we saw that bacteria in both bottles out of your blood, then you have to treat it as something harmful because they can, in the right situation, cause disease. At my facility, we had a very high issue of contaminated results, meaning that either one or both of the blood cultures would have one of these non-pathogenic bacteria growing in the blood. And so traditionally, if it's one out of two, you could almost write it off and say, okay, well, it's not real. It only grew in one of the bottles, one of the sets of bottles but we even ran into issues where it was growing in both sets of the bottles and it almost became a deal where if the patient looked fine and they weren't showing signs of infection you almost ignored it mm-hmm. and that's and in residency that's definitely not what we were taught because it was such a rare occurrence that if they were in both bottles that you know you had to treat this as real
0: right I, and I so you know go um, ahead no I was just going to say I I had a couple of cases in residency where they were two out of two contaminants, but you knew they were contaminants truly because they were, it, one bottle had one organism
1: and the other bottle had another organism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In, in that case, yes, for sure. So I, I started doing a little investigation and saying, Hey, how, what, what's going on here? And again, um, you know, some people that were collecting the cultures, basically just weren't following protocol. And um, I think that's the biggest thing with contamination is if you follow protocol that you have the ability to do it pretty well. Um, But uh, if I am drawing both the cultures out of the, I start an IV and I draw both cultures from that IV. Well, if one of them's contaminated, they're both going to be contaminated. And that's, that's bad practice. You know, like I said, a few minutes ago, you want them from separate sites, separate sticks. So made a lot of changes in in that regard as well. Um, with with working with nursing, working with the lab and the phlebotomist on reducing our contamination rates. Also introduced a product um, through a through a company that at the time the only FDA approved company that allowed when you stick for the blood culture, it actually wastes about the first one to two uh milliliters of blood so that the skin plug from the needle going in things like that are diverted away and so then the blood you get are is is more natural oh wow that's interesting yeah right now the industry standard for although there's no government mandated or there's no penalty for it at this point although that may be coming the, the kind of overall lab industry standard for contaminations is that you want them to be less than 3%. And when I kind of started looking into this, ours was about 7%. And we had had, we had, had um, several, several different months where it was in the double digits. And I, I ran the data. And basically at our facility, if you had a positive blood culture, so if any bacteria grew on a blood culture there was over a 70% chance that it was contaminant.
0: In so your on, facility or yes, anywhere? Yes, okay, in, in okay. my
1: facility. But nationwide, honestly, Matt, nationwide that number is not that much better, that, right. that positive blood cultures are not real, that it's a contaminant if you have a positive blood culture. And the the, uh, the downfall or the, the downstream effects of that are huge. So you have a patient that comes in and and like I was saying, they are going to get more antibiotics. They're going to be on stronger antibiotics that can cause kidney problems and other issues. Certain bacteria have a tendency to attach to the heart and cause heart infection called endocarditis. So they have to have a special procedure that requires sedation to view their heart and make sure that there's not... um, Bacteria growth on the heart valves. And this, of course, as you would with any procedure, has risk involved. Length of hospital stay increases. And so the longer you're in the hospital, the more chance you have for something to go wrong um, in general. So tons of downstream effects. So like I said, we were at about 7% after making some practice changes, um, basically enforcing already existing protocol As best we could, we've gotten our infection rate down to about 2%. Oh,
0: wow. Um, That's
1: significant. Right. And so very happy with those results as well. My ultimate goal and perhaps the federal government's ultimate goal here soon, um, they love to penalize people you know they set these goals and then penalize you when you don't reach them is one percent so that's my ultimate goal is to get to one percent or less contamination rate but I'm very happy with the work that we've done and it's been a sustained a sustained decrease I've been using this product for 17 months and and we're down at two percent with the use of the product and with these other changes that we've made.
0: That's incredible. Have you been able to turn any of these products that you're working on into teachable moments or projects for residents?
1: Um, Yeah, so the the product itself, I have nothing to do with. I didn't create it. I didn't design it. I've just worked with the company on implementing it and in our facility and recently gave a talk to the Mississippi Hospital Association actually last week about success with the product um, as a non-paid endorser. The um, but yeah. So residents here, they know that I've been called the uh, Clabsey Police, the Blood Culture <laughs> Police. But Dr. Rosnick would be so proud. Yeah, but I encourage them to always reach out. You know, when they have questions, and so I've more than once had folks call me from. The night shift, you know, 10 o'clock at night and be like, hey, Dr. Troop, I'm sorry to bother you, but I have a question about should we do X, Y, Z or what's the best approach to this so that we do what's best for the patient and that we do what's best for the metric? Because, unfortunately, in medicine, I think the government steps in to set these metrics and these standards to help mortality and to to help our patients. But at times it becomes a game you know honestly that you kind of have to play and and you do what's best for the patient always but you have to know how to document things correctly and and how to make sure things are time stamped appropriately so that you do meet the metric that the government has set for us
0: definitely lots of hoops to jump through and i do think in, in general that the the regulations that are in place and that continue to come are are, are for patient safety uh, when it comes to medicine, what fills your cup more, teaching or taking care of patients? Oh, that's a
1: good question. Um, I, I like the days that both are integrated well, I guess. Those are the days that, that really, really um, are good for me. And so on a day-to-day basis, I like teaching, um, but I like taking care of patients Sometimes, and I'm sure most people in any job feel this, you kind of get bored with the routine. Um, you know, being a hospitalist, you see a lot of heart failure. You see a lot of COPD. And so when you get those exciting cases come in that, that you can turn into teachable moments and that you help the residents learn and, and see how to treat this and how, um, and then at the same time, taking good care of the patient. I, I really like those days. Those are the best days. But if I had to pick one or the other, I think I get more personally probably from teaching, watching residents grow, um, seeing someone who comes in, as I said, I've been the six years doing this. So I've seen two full classes come through internal medicines, three year training and seeing folks that come in that struggle, you know, they're struggling with whatever it is um, early on in their first year and then watching them. Click. And I think for most people that's been through the process of med school and residency, you kind of realize at a certain point without even knowing it, that things just kind of click and you they just seem to make more sense to you. And you no longer feel exactly like a stranger in the hospital. Um, you feel like you belong in that. Hey, what I'm doing, I can actually do this. And, and so I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that.
0: Yeah. And it's important for medical educators out there that might be listening to this to remember hey, those are your residents you're kind of responsible for their development and just kind of you know kicking the can down the road or blaming them for their inadequacies is not fair to that learner and i i'm not saying this about you i know you're going to take responsibility and and try to get those people the resources that they need so i I think it's really great that you still have continued that passion for learning and the synergy sounds like the sweet spot for you.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I I don't, I don't foresee myself ever being the true physician executive that is sitting in an office and, you know, meetings from eight to five every day that I I still want to be out in the, uh, out in the trenches, so to speak. But at the same time, I do like the, the administrative slash educational aspect of medicine.
0: Definitely. Do you practice medicine in a way that reflects your own mortality or your own views on mortality?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I, like I, like I said previously, you know, I think a lot of people, especially outside of medicine, but even a lot inside of medicine aren't good with death and talking about it and comfortable with it and um for whatever reason i am and and i think that it helps me tremendously and hopefully helps patients and their families when they're facing death to be to be honest and to be forthright but to be compassionate and understand that this is a huge deal but at the same time I often tell people when I'm kind of given my little spiel that death is a part of life, you know, and it's the final part of life. And there's really no more life after it, obviously, but it's a part of life nonetheless. And so just like reaching adulthood, just like uh, getting married or other significant events that happen in your life, death is a part of, is, is one of those events. and, and, the finality of it can be very difficult, even for me at times, to comprehend. And I think, you know, everybody has those moments at times where they're like, oh, I wish I could live forever or do whatever. But in the end, it's 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 a natural thing and it's what happens. And I think the more honest and open and comfortable you are knowing that, hey, this is coming for us all and... It's gonna happen and it and so how can we make it the best the best that we can it's again like you mentioned earlier talking making decisions for people it, it's not it's not gonna be fun it's not gonna be easy um, but to know that it is one of those necessary steps of life I think really helps uh, help shape how how we approach it.
0: I agree with that how often and how this is a two-part question. How often and how do you explore your own mortality? Do you have a practice around that?
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. And I would say, um, probably not often enough. I, uh, not to get super personal and, but I will share that in the past year or so, I did have a, a health scare. Um, not a, not a acute health scare, but, uh, some signs, symptoms, things that could portend a worse diagnosis later in life, and um, that was very tough for me. I was, I was, uh, you know, looking at it from myself, um, and so I would say I spent a good bit of time then, um, and I wouldn't say that it it changed my views on things or that it it uh, it made me it it. I had some existential change but I do think it made me look into what I want to see out of my life especially when it comes to things like okay well if this were to happen you know what would you have wanted to accomplish or what would you want to to leave behind and whether that be and it allowed me to be more honest with myself about those things particularly things with regarding family and you know do you want to pursue those things and and have children and that kind of uh, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I'm sorry that you had that health scare. Um, I mean, yeah, that that's always a tough thing to to kind of sort through and deal with and figure out all the information. But I, I am really excited to hear that it brought you to a place of honesty with yourself. And I yeah, hope that sure. I hope that these ongoing conversations can bring people to the moment of serenity um so yeah that's i mean
1: you, you basically hit on why i want to do this project so thank you right. for sharing, for sharing yeah. all
0: that
1: yeah it is it's a uh, 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 serenity is probably a good word it was it's scary um you know and and i you know i feel that in my my thing that i have a great explanation of why those issues were happening and that it's not going to be related to Um, What I was fearful of, but in that moment when you're not knowing and then you, you really get honest with yourself and it, it, it does bring you a strange sense of peace. Definitely.
0: Do you think, and how do you think medical education could stand to add courses on mortality? Like, should that be at the medical school level? Should that be as a resident? Should there be a whole year on, on becoming like an ethicist?
1: Yeah, that's a, a, that's a, a, a great question. I think that medical education overall lacks in several areas. Um, and that being one of them dealing with death and dying. And, you know, I think when you get ready to go to med school, you have this, uh, this idea that, you know, nothing's going to bother you perhaps, or that you're ready for all these things. And then you you get through med school and and you still probably have some of those thoughts because you're not exposed to, you're exposed to some, but not a ton of, of these type issues during med school. And then depending on what specialty you go into, I mean, really every specialty in some way you're going to deal with death and mortality, even the ones that are uh, less patient involved. Um but I think personally, I think, yeah, I think there should be more emphasis on it. I don't know when the right time for that to be would would be. Um, I, I tend to try to think back to my training and, and the things that I went through. And I think in medical school, so much emphasis has been placed on grades and usmle or COMLEX scores mm-hmm. although level one as you know now pastor fell and that's a that's a whole different discussion but there's so much emphasis still on the academics of of uh, of medicine and of the science of medicine that i don't know that I would have even been responsive to it at that time. I would right. have felt like it almost, oh, this is some busy thing that they're trying to make me do when I really need to be studying biochemistry.
0: yeah, like um, you want, you want to introduce this burden of reading an actual Gwande book, just for example, and I still don't have to learn all the pathophysiology of the liver. It's like what what do you want? Like I have I'm supposed to be a doctor. Like I could totally see that as a response and exactly for medical students. But that being said, You know we're many years out of medical school at this point. Right. I kind of think it might be appropriate to have like one or two, not textbook readings, but something like an Atul Gawande or something like that. Like just read one a year in in medical school, and then you could have a more formalized like conference program about mortality in residency. And it didn't. It doesn't have to be anything like big it could just be an hour every 3 months or something like that to just address that stuff and then through over over the years i think accumulate it would accumulate and people would just be more comfortable in general but that's just like very rough brainstorming off the top of my head
1: yeah no i i i don't disagree with you on especially once you move into the residency and that's Kind of what I was getting at. When you're focused on the academics, you're not exposed to it. It's not going to mean as much to me, in my opinion. And then, but when you get out into the quote-unquote real world, or even you know the residency real world, where you're dealing with patients day in, day out, and you're seeing these things day in, day out, I think having a you know we have a, a conference actually called mortality and morbidity and mortality, but it doesn't focus on this. Uh, psychological so much side of and sociological side of of mortality but more of the again the quality improvement or the scientific side of it yeah just and for that, the audience morbidity and mortality
0: conference often known as m&m is where there's a case review and can sometimes feel punitive but as cody said it's essentially just to look back and see what could be done better um, from a systems perspective, but it doesn't address kind of this life process, um, sociological, psychological. I, there's probably a better word for this, but like Cody said, it doesn't address any of that. And you could you could simply have a mature, like maybe you would call it a mortality and spirituality co- conference. I don't know. That might sound a little too woohoo for some people. <laughs> but just to bring like it would just give a resident a chance to bring a case and discuss like how they dealt with the end of life care and end of life discussions with the patient and family. And I think
1: there'd be a lot of value in that, honestly. Yeah, no. And like I'm, my brain's kind of, the wheels are kind of turning in my head just about even trying to have a pilot or, you know, just to see what I could do with my program or our program and say, Hey, you know, let's just kind of have, I I do think you would get some of the response of the, the foo-foo, woo-woo stuff, like you said. But I think if, you know, you're open about these things and talk, I think it is important because this is a, you know, like I said, you deal with it in every field in medicine. And it's, if you don't have healthy, a healthy relationship with death and with bad outcomes and mortality, that it's going to be a long draining draining career for most people if if they can't find outlets and be able to healthily in a healthy way um deal with these things i I would love that if you could come up with some type of
0: you know 12-month pilot of doing something like this and just seeing how the residents respond and i mean you probably get a a decent paper or poster (laughs) out of it too
1: and Yeah,
0: I think think it could be the beginning of something potentially or, or it could, you know, flat fall flat on its face, but who
1: knows? (laughs) You never know till you try. Yeah.
0: Well, Cody, we've covered a lot today. Is there anything else you
1: wanted to address? I don't think so. Not anything in particular. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk and tell a little bit of my story and I'm excited to see how this podcast goes for you. And, um, glad that you've taken the initiative to do it cool i appreciate having you
0: and you're always one of my favorite people to talk to and thanks for sharing some personal stuff i'll go ahead and wrap up here the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only a patient physician relationship is never established through this medium and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Thank you.